I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio versus the Martians. So one thing that Disney never did, which I credit Don Bluth for uh, putting in his Space Ace game, was a gratuitous u- upskirt shot on a female. Uh, on a female. Don uh, Bluth com- never did that. No, that what Disney did not do. Ah. What Don Bluth succeeded in doing was a pervy upskirt shot for the female from Space Ace. There, did you see it? Did you guys watch it? I haven't watched Space Ace. Okay, yeah. no, there's yeah. just the, the basically the 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 heroine character is exactly the same, a big breasted sex object for teenage boys and she has this sort of flourish that she does that her skirt kind of flies up almost like Marilyn Monroe style where you get like a an animated ass shot and that just reminds me of all like the obligatory and conspicuous pervy stuff that Japanese animators would put into video games throughout the 80s and 90s where you'd just be like why are there tits there and, why is there panties there <laughs> come on pervy Japanese that was actually man. something I believe Nintendo cut out of a lot of things they would cut out nudity they would cut out creepiness well, for um, North America, yes. In North America, yes, yeah. but they wouldn't in the in Japan. There's, there's plenty of porno, porno, uh, like uh, oh, fuck, what's it called? The you talking about hentai? Game. No, the, the the tile game. Why am I blinking on the tile game? The Chinese tile game. Mahjong. Porno mahjong games. What? They're all yeah, they're all over. There are what? hundreds of them. Now I want to invade every retirement home in in Southern Florida and see which old Jewish grannies are playing the porno version of the. Mahjong. I thought you wanted to, you were going to say you were going to swap them out. You're going to cause a lot of heart attacks. No, no. I think actually, like if they're all over the place, I'm sure that there are like old grannies in retirement homes playing with nudie sets. No, well there are porno mahjong video games. Oh. I I can't oh, yeah. speak yeah, yeah, yeah. for. I'm sure there are some hunk calendar like mahjong tiles. I'm I'm guessing. <laughs> Sets that you could buy just as a novelty. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they're the mahjong, mahjong titles are a little small, though. I don't. Know. <laughs> You're not really getting the same effect as you would with like playing cards. It's true. You can actually see. It's like, hold on, let me get my jeweler's loop out. Oh, that's a hunky piece of man meat. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't necessarily know that that would work. Oh, as I well. want a jeweler's loop. I, not that you've said it, I really want one. I've that, never I've seen one wanted of, one. I've never seen one of those not in a movie. It's like it's a certain thing that only happens in a movie that you don't have happen in real life, like a birthday party with a clown at it. <laughs> I, I so I actually have I have a crappy one because um, so this is probably about five five or six years ago. My uh, my fiance which is a word I hate, but I won't go there right now. Uh, my girlfriend, who I'll be marrying in October. Um, Congratulations, I was, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm pretty stoked on it. We actually just put the deposit down on the venue, which is one less thing I have to worry about, <laughs> which is nice. Um, now I only have a thousand more things. But uh, I was going, I'd finally gotten back uh, to school. I was going to, I was... Um, I decided that I wanted to pursue a degree in physics, which lasted about five minutes. But um, I'm going to assume that means you mastered it in five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like <laughs> Stephen Hawking times Einstein. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, no, it meant that I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to. I was in a class with a bunch of people that were like 10 and 15 years my junior, 
and I had a family and I was like, there was just no way I was going to be able to put in that much work. Hmm. And I was at Evergreen and Evergreen, the sciences at Evergreen are well aware of Evergreen's reputation. <laughs> so they, they basically on the first day of class, they have a device that they use for extracting your soul and replacing it with just breaking it and then putting it back in you so that you're just broken for the whole time. <laughs> wow. Um, it's no, it's, it's like, they really are going to, f- they're overcompensating they, for, they really want you to know science. I'll just put it that way. And they're great. I mean, there's some great instructors there, but, uh, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And especially at the level we were doing, cause I was taking a class that was calculus and then, uh, university physics, and then we were also doing linguistics because it was one of those weird multidisciplinary things. I approve. But it was <laughs> it was interesting, but it also kind of killed me. But uh, my girlfriend saved up and spent a ridiculous amount of money on this beautiful Citizen watch that has a star map of the Northern Hemisphere on it, oh. and it actually rotates in real time. Like, you have to have a degree to fucking set the watch. That's that's some Swiss shit, it's, ain't it? Yeah, it's straight up. It's, nice. And it's a beautiful watch um, uh, that I very rarely wear because I'm afraid I'm going to damage it <laughs> because I'm a huge, clumsy oaf. But it came with, like, this crappy jeweler's loop so you could right. actually read the star chart because right. it's, it's minute, you know, but... I do feel super cool when I use it. Is I that a physicist that. mahjong porn? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Get off on oh, the uh, star yeah. constellations. You go, oh, Cassiopeia. <laughs> Basically, everything is a doll. Hey, look at that sexy Cygnus star. Oh, yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah. That was possibly the most nerdy thing we've said all night. <laughs> you go, supernova, you sexy little star, you, you red giant, you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, went right over the top with that one. <laughs> I often have moments where, uh, in Futurama, where Leela is talking to Fry, and she goes, Fry, remember how we talked about how you should end all your thoughts a sentence earlier? That's that's going to be the name of my biography. <laughs> uh, you know how um, we well, last month we were talking about nunchucks? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, it got a little out of hand. The, 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 the listener responds to nunchucks, the, the, the nunchuck debacle, yeah, I, I think. I've got to say, um, maybe it's just further evidence that I just can't stop thinking about nunchucks, <laughs> but there was another work-related nunchuck story that I have. Um, as I've said before, I work at a used bookstore, and a big chunk of my job is uh, I work in the back, and people bring in their stuff. They're like cleaning out their house, doing spring cleaning, their garage, all that stuff. Auntie died. I get a pile of stuff and uh, figure out what we can buy for the store, what we can sell. And occasionally, we get what I refer to as a death of a dream buy. <laughs> And the death of a dream by is the one that it's like there's an immediate obvious backstory to it. And it's a backstory I don't want to be true. And it's always (laughs) a pile of the same sort of thing, like a bunch of books on how to get into law school or how to be a working actor or how to be a fireman. You know, and it's when I see that pile of that stuff, all I see is like a dream that has washed up and broken on the rocks. And one time I saw an especially... I don't know, um, amazing uh, Death of a Dream by, and it was five separate books on how to use nunchucks. 
I shit you know. Perhaps the saddest death of a dream. Maybe like Joe, having mastered physics in five minutes, <laughs> the client for which you were buying all these books was just like, it's so, you don't even know that this person realized their dream because they're so super secret. They're like so awesome yeah. at being a ninja that you don't even know. Did it. you ever I, consider that the books were so effective that they no longer needed them, so they were just getting rid of they've them? They've moved on. Yeah. It's like this. This needs to be found by somebody else. <laughs> somebody else, else needs the wisdom. Uh, my work here is done, and you just walk off into the sunset to find somebody else to help. Is you to wander the earth like Kane from Kung Fu? It's like Jewels at the End of Pulp Fiction. He takes out a pair of nunchucks, steps outside the store, takes out a pair of nunchucks, spins them around his fingers, and just flies off into the night. So, Becky, your your explanation is the one that I desperately hold on to. The dream has been realized. Yeah, that yeah. it's like this is been achieved i have mastered this and now i have no further need of this now i'm gonna go fight ninjas in hell's kitchen (laughs) i know i've found my calling but honestly it's probably a guy who hit age 25 and he's like you know i've had these things for like 10 years Am I really going to do this? <laughs> These are never going to be an effective weapon for me. He I'm just needed to sell off his collection in order to purchase the book that he desperately needs on hydroponics. He's <laughs> 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 a little short in cash. Uh, so he reluctantly parted with those books. But there, there was another thing that we get in at work, I and mean, we get these piles of stuff, and occasionally... We get another thing. We get a thing that just kind of falls into a buy. And I'm just going to hand this around because I kept it. I kept this thing that was in a uh, in a buy that we got. And I just want to I, I want to have it in my hands to know that this is real. And as you can see, this is a CD that is marked. <laughs> yes, you see it. I think this is the follow-up to Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds, isn't it? Yes, this is a, a burned <laughs> CD that says on it, Assorted Chicken Sounds. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so, oh, it, it's like it's in the very nicest like block letter, yeah. too, with like a fine point Sharpie. This, this definitely oh. came out of a collection with other hits, such as Assorted Goat Sounds, <laughs> Assorted Cow Sounds. <laughs> and uh, so we, we had this thing at work where, like, we we got to know what's on here. Because the uh, uh, first fear was, what if it's just a bunch? What if somebody just recorded themselves masturbating or something really <laughs> creepy? Which is not unheard of. I don't know what's on there. So we, we put it on a CD player. It is exactly what it says on there. <laughs> oh, my God. Are we going? Are we, are He's we opening going, the DVD drive on We're his going computer. live to a sort of chicken sounds. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but this is an actual thing that uh, we we got on uh, on a CD. Is this an urban homesteader that's recording their backyard? I mean, is what what is this? You know, I don't actually know. I assume this is exactly that. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> I want, it might have been the sound person from a production of Oklahoma. It's weird. I don't really know what it's there for. If you just need, there's ambient. actually very few and far between. Yeah, chickens. They are a taciturn bunch. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I, think just, I think it's just too quiet for that's, us to that's hear. That's hence the saying, as quiet as a chicken, right? Yeah. That's why that's a thing. I mean, you, never, right? you never hear the chicken that gets you. <laughs> Actually, looking at this, given that it's a single... 22 minute track with clearly a lot of uh, clearly a lot of like blank space between it. Dead air. I think it's just a guy that had a that had a, a tape recorder or a digital recorder and went to someone's backyard and recorded 22 minutes of dead air. 
I think is what it was, <laughs> with a few chickens thrown in. I think this is actually the guy who goes and collects the Foley sound effects. That's it's, yeah. That, that be, was his hobby. I hope he would pair out the silence a little bit better. <laughs> but no. yeah, it's yeah, it's just chicken sounds. That's for somebody else to do. There's some clucking. It's clearly recorded outside. What you need to do is you need to get some really good, like, you need to get, do the whole, like, CSI thing where you strip it down, and because in the background <laughs> you're going to find, like, evidence of a drug deal or a murder or, like, somebody buying an assassin or something like that. I'm, I'm uh, there's you, a train. There's a train, there's a train faintly in the background. That means it's, that it's tri- if we triangulated between here, it means that it was halfway between this flat and the, it's somewhere in, in in the vicinity of Lacey and Yelm. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Swear, this is probably has like hidden on another level of this that probably only our friend Sam can find. It's probably like that disc at the beginning of Skyfall that has all of the agents' oh, real yeah. names on it. And so it's just been passed around, and this is just the opening salvo. We're like those NPC characters at the beginning of a movie, and it's only a matter of time before the villain who, it's, their introduction scene is suddenly like a samurai sword comes out through my chest, <laughs> and they, they take the chicken sounds disc away. It just gets passed around from person to person until there's a murder. So that means uh, either Daniel Craig or Tom Cruise will be in this movie. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, Actually, I'm probably not okay Tom Cruise because I think we we would all make Tom Cruise look really short, <laughs> in, including Becky. What? No, Aww. I would I would look normal sized next to Tom, <laughs> to Tom Cruise. Cruise. <laughs> but he's lar- but he's larger than life. His personality is larger than life, and that's what counts, right? You know, for a little guy, he can jump up on a couch pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> He cleared that couch. We are a spry bunch. We under five fivers. <laughs> it's funny because um, uh, my my dad got really into the Jack Reacher books. Oh yeah, and then let me read them because I'm I'm a big fan of like that kind of fiction. I love the Robert B. Parker Spencer books and and like um, stuff like that. And so I, I really liked the Reacher books. I thought they were pretty. They're fun to just like read over a weekend. And then I'm like, oh, they're going to make a movie. And I'm like, oh, I wonder who they'll get. You know, like Tom Hardy's a big dude. He I'm could, sure he you did totally not visualize Tom Cruise so I'm like, being in oh, that role. Oh, you got the what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, I, I mean, I understand that like Tom Cruise, you know, regardless of some of his personal faults, is, is a great actor. But he, like, And he brings the asses in the seats. That's yeah, the most important part. But right? he's not six foot five and almost 300 pounds. Like, that's. It's not a thing that any amount of acting will Here's get the him. thing. Here's the thing. I feel like Tom Cruise is the anti-Keanu Reeves. Oh, you're going to have to explain that yeah. one. So I, I think Keanu Reeves works incredibly well. I think we were just talking about John Wick downstairs where it's the perfect synthesis of the, the things that he's best suited for, right? His being in an action movie, being a guy that doesn't need to emote a lot he need of emote in very specific ways and someone who will give himself over to the physicality of the role um he did incredibly well uh and and he is naturally in that element tom cruise has the same has has this has the same reputation of being that guy who will be his physicality he just wants to prove that he's invincible and he's doing it to stroke his own ego he wants to prove that he does have like scientology healing powers and that he can hang off the side of an airplane right and and not die um He's Keanu Reeves seems authentic in those movies and can play someone with depth. Tom Cruise to me just seems like he. Am I am I not getting through here? Tom Cruise is like the is is the the guy who you uh, you can never imagine having any vulnerability at all. Here's here's my test. So um, Keanu Reeves was in much about much ado about nothing. So Keanu Reeves not only is what you describe, but he can also do Shakespeare. Is there some place in the entire Shakespeare canon where you could 
authentically cast Tom Cruise. And don't say the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. Um, <laughs> a sale! No, um, I would say with Tom Cruise, I could see him doing... This is going to sound weird. I'm going to get smacked for this. Uh, I could see possibly Hamlet because he's so fucking manic all the time. Uh, um, no, smack. Okay. <laughs> smack. She is coming across the table. I could not stop her. Uh, because he's he's clearly got problems, and you kind of need somebody wait, wait, who has didn't problems. didn't Keanu play Hamlet in Canada? Did he? No, he played Macbeth. Excuse me. He played Macbeth. Okay. In Ontario, I think. Because I know that Mel Gibson was Hamlet <clears throat> once, but where do we put Tom Cruise? What about like uh, King Richard? Somebody that's really kind of like... He's a dick, you might say. Yeah. He could yeah. authentically play a dick. Yeah, really I, fucking well. I guess the whole thing is... is I've always said this about Tom Cruise, is that the one thing that he... The one thing that Tom Cruise uh, net will never play is a, is a guy, as a character, who truly is vulnerable. Well, he's too well, insecure for that. Does, yes, But he exactly. does it in uh, Magnolia. He's fucking brilliant in Magnolia. But he's not, though. He is. He's vulnerable in a way that still allows him to be a domineering, power-hungry, aggressive person that that has some struggle but still has to be that dick has but, to be that asshole and i agree but i think that i there is that scene with him in the car that i think where all his kind of shields are down and he's just sitting in his car like tears streaming down his face and i think that that is what sells the rest of that fucking movie I, for me i think you i think uh, i agree i agree i mean sure. i i agree, i agree with i agree with what you're saying in general like i think i don't that, think he does it anymore i don't think you're going to find him in a movie doing that oh, anymore oh no 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 now no no magnolia he's... the one with the plague of frogs yes, yes. okay yeah. it's uh, pt yeah pt anderson's yeah. second is that Juli- movie? julianne moore is in that one and john c riley <laughs> i get it mixed up with memento john c riley is in it because pt anderson loves him i don't <laughs> Yeah. Uh, These were the confusing G- movies Julia of the late Moore, 90s that was probably a little too over my 16-year-old head. I do um, love my favorite thing with John C. Riley ever is actually the scene in Boogie Nights where uh, Marky Mark is singing the theme song to Optimus Prime yes. and John C. Riley is rocking out in the sound booth. He's trying yes. his hardest to help him out. It's kind of wonderful. <laughs> that that one shot of him banging his head back for the song is is my favorite thing he's ever done. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I I I really like John C. Riley and Step Brothers, which is a movie I went and saw with zero expectations, and it legitimately made me laugh. He was great in Guardians of the Galaxy too. Oh yeah, well, is he plays a cop in it, and he doesn't even play a cop that they humiliate a bunch of times. He's like a good cop who just is like, I just want to do my job and go home. He's just like a work a day guy. And he gets thrown in the middle of an action movie with a bunch of smartasses. Well, it's funny because he plays a cop in Magnolia, too. <laughs> yeah, he does. I, I, I was just thinking about this. What other movie that John, uh, that John, John C. Riley would be good at? Uh, and it popped back into my head, Mike. Ghostbusters movie. Oh. In a, in a Ghostbusters movie as a Ghostbuster? I'm just saying what could have, had, what could have been the new Ghostbusters I, reboot. If you had to use the same archetypes as... Um, as the original Ghostbusters, I think John C. Riley would be really great in the Winston role of the guy who is there for the paycheck, who is not a scientist, who's probably the guy who has to talk to the cops after you blow something up <laughs> because he's the only one who's either not so weird in his own little world or is somebody who um, knows how to talk to normal people and is not going to be a smart ass con artist. Right. So I could I could see him in that kind of a deal. 
Uh, you're going to make me talk about the Ghostbusters trailer, We're, aren't you? Are, are you of the it is soulless and terrible kind yes, of Yes, I am. Camp? Well, see, see, you guys did this for me with the Star Trek Beyond trailer, so I think Turnabout is fair play, Mike. I, I, I've, I've made this, this thing before. I think this is the third or fourth time we've, we've talked to briefly about the Ghostbusters reboot, and I have no problem with it in principle. And, and it's important because of how much you love Ghostbusters. I love Ghostbusters yeah. a lot. It's not like yeah. I have this, oh, you have to do Ghostbusters this way, rah! like that. I'm not I'm not that. Um, and I have no problem with the cast. I think the cast could be in a great Ghostbusters movie. The problem is that the trailer looked like Pixels. And it looked yeah. like a, you mean the, the 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 Adam Sandler movie Pixels? Oh, yes. Ouch. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like this was another you know interchangeable comedy film that has gross out beats and it has a bunch of stuff. Everything's a bit too brightly colored to effectively nail the fact that there are bits of Ghostbusters that are played totally straight, and it's a bunch of funny people in a genuinely scary world. I don't know. Maybe the trailer is trying to appeal to stupid people, and maybe it's amazing and great, but I've never heard anyone who praises the movie say one thing about the script, which ultimately is the only thing that matters. Because uh, another great example, you know what else has a remarkably good cast? Star Wars Episode One. Yes. Has a great cast, and ultimately, if the script and the direction are not there, and I'm not really a fan of, of Bridesmaids, and I don't want Bridesmaids with proton packs, right. I I kind of go of two things, is that there's two kind of reboots that you can do. There's the reboot that is nostalgia-driven, that is all about hitting all of the notes that the original has, or not really that the original had, but our memory of the original had. Right. You're talking uh, Force Awakens in this yeah, Force, case, right? Yeah, that's when it's done really well. Um, and it's rarely done well because it's usually a cynical cash-in, which is what I fear this might be. Uh, there's the ones where it's like, oh, we got to have proton packs, we got to have the Ecto-1, we've got to have Slimer show up. Um, all, all of that stuff is still sort of there. Uh, somebody's got to get slimed. And I. there's also in New York. Um, and then there's the other kind of reboot, which is what I was hoping they would do instead, which is that you pull out the base of the spine and you build a new body around that. And what Ghostbusters ultimately is about is about a group of weirdos who otherwise would have like a public access show. Weirdo outcast scientists who would be laughable if the world didn't happen to make them all right and then they didn't save the world and if you can nail that and they just happen to fight ghosts that they're outcasts they're thrown out of the life they had and now they're going to save the world and if you have the cast it has Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy that movie has there's a movie in there that could be incredible I would feel a lot, a lot safer if it was like a script written by like Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, right. who know how to have that kind of vibe to it. Just have that aspect and change everything else. Don't necessarily do proton packs. Don't do New York City again. And instead of forcing them into the exact same archetypes that were written for Bill Murray, that were written for Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd and uh, Ernie Hudson, Instead, write new character archetypes that play to the strengths of the actresses that are playing the roles. Create whole new characters that, I mean, there only Bill Murray is Peter Venkman, and Kristen Wiig needs to be the Kristen Wiig character, because otherwise all you can do is compare her to another actor, and she is always going to pale in that. You create her iconic Ghostbusters character, mm-hmm. and she's a great comedic actress. 
And there is no excuse to not give her that. Um, then on the other end, this is the kind of reboot that I really want, which is I want one that does what Dawn of the Planet of the Apes did, which is it has the basic core concept and sort of the tone and a lot of the same ambitions, but all the nouns are different. Mm-hmm. And hmm. I kind of want to go in that way where it doesn't feel like I'm remaking a movie. It feels like I hate this term to death, but I can't come up with a better word, reimagining that mm-hmm. movie. So that's my large beef with it. That. It occurs to me that the central point was when you're talking about it, that it needs to have a good script. But I think this is coming from sort of the Paul Rudd, Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell style of putting together a comedy where you largely let the actors themselves improvise the substance of bo- all of the scenes on the set. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and this is this presents a, this presents a problem with having something that has to have a dramatic arc in the satisfying way that the original Ghostbusters did. But it, it makes for successful comedies. Obviously, Judd Apatow makes so a godly, ungodly amount of money. And I hate hating this trailer so much. Mm. It makes I don't want to be in the same camp as a bunch of assholes who are hating it for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be that. That that I certainly don't want to be. And I want to love this movie because I don't want there to be anything Ghostbusters that I don't like. I want to love Ghostbusters. And maybe I just need to see a new trailer, but I I don't know. Maybe it's just that I don't get excited about comedies that come out nowadays because it feels like none of them are made for somebody who cares about character and filmmaking and stuff like that and wants there to be uh, strong characters and engaging plot, something that works played straight and funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that humor can't come from just people getting kicked in the balls and falling down and it has to also come from really well realized characters reacting to things in their environment and other characters around them it's like one of the things i love that they would do on later seasons of the office is that they had built up these side characters so much that all you had to do sometimes was just cut to them after something happened and you didn't actually have to tell the joke you just had to see their face because you knew them well enough that you didn't need a line there. You just mm. like, holy shit, that's wonderful. Like the character of Creed on The Office, they always used him in just the right amount, that he's kind of a creep, he's clearly a criminal. It's implied at one point that he's not the real Creed and he killed the real Creed and <laughs> took his identity. But there's a scene where somebody, um, I think Michael wants to frame somebody for having drugs in the office and the cops come in and they say, uh, we've been told that somebody here may be hiding drugs in this office and the camera just shoots to Creed and he has this look of terror on his face. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what comedy has to sort of be. So that, that then doesn't end up uh, moving you in feature-length films, but you do see it in television at this point. A lot, I see a lot better comedy on TV. Like Something like Parks and Rec is great, um, but I don't see anything with that kind of writing. Maybe it's just writing is better on TV than it is in movies. I don't think they're being written in the way that you think they are. That's yeah. what, that's the, that this thing that's, that film comedies are done a different way now. I mean, Parks and Rec is lar- Parks and Rec is largely the product of putting very funny people together and letting them kind of do their own thing, and you see that a lot. I mean, Curb Your Enthusiasm is pretty much like Larry David and whoever's directing the episode gets everybody that's going to be in the episode together and gives them the arc and then just lets them go. Hmm. And so, what you get is this very real. Epi- you know, this very real kind of storytelling where you have some incredibly funny people doing just shit that is kind of like nobody could have written that. Like that came out of the fact that 
Larry David and Jason Alexander have worked together for, you know, 15 years on Seinfeld, and they have a relationship outside of this scene that they're in, so they know how to play off each other. And you see it with, like, I'm a huge fan of improv comedy, and, like, Paul F. Tompkins and Scott Ackerman from Comedy Bang Bang, Mm. and a lot of those guys, Matt Gorley, they when they work with people they work with often, you get really rich. Um, fucking Ben Schwartz is hilariously funny. You know, John Ralphio on Parks and Rec. And that's like all him just being mm. himself. Like, I don't think you can write that. And I think that part of that is you kind of have to direct that You can, and you have to kind of like point it in a direction. Right. But I, I maybe it's harder to do in ninety minutes at one shot than it is a whole season. I, worth I think it is, right? but I, I think that when you look at like Christopher Guest's movies, when you mm, look at mm-hmm. stuff like Spinal Tap, a lot of that shit, all that shit was improvised. But that's why he brought the same people right. back. Yeah, and so I think it's it is hard. Like comedy is one of those things that is so involved. You know, like I think if you look at drama, if you look at horror. The, the the kind of tropes change a little bit, but the sensibilities, I think, are generally the same. And I I think if uh, Kit hears me say that, she's going to kick my ass because she's <laughs> sensitive about horror. Mm. But um, uh, one of my co-hosts from View from the Gutters. Um, but I think comedy is something that's very tied to the zeitgeist. And so it's it's hard to get a level on. Mm. You're either funny or you're not, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, look at somebody like Amy Schumer. You know, it's like some people think she's hilarious and some people just think she's awful. You know, uh, I, so I don't know. I think that it, it probably is a lot harder to do that in 90 minutes. You know, I, right. I, I wonder about that, too, because it feels like there has to be in humor, I think, there's much more of a need for a voice than there is in drama. And uh, you mentioned Amy Schumer. There's a lot of stuff I've seen where there's a lot of craft that goes into recreating a specific thing, and there's a voice there. So it's a lot easier to get into it. I don't see a voice with this trailer. I see that you could have replaced these actresses with four different actors, and it would have played out exactly the same. And that's Hmm. the part that is... Because it needs a narrative, right? It needs a narrative, but also because Ghostbusters isn't the same as Parks and Rec in that... There is a mythology that has to play out totally straight as well that Ghostbusters is a comedy primarily we think of it that way because the three of the four main actors are not dramatic actors. They're actually comedians like Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis. Well, that and the premise being something that is like on its face absurd isn't you know matched with actual reality. So the combination of the absurd premise, the comedic actors being your main guys, that makes it a comedy. So in this case, though, you continue to have the absurd premise. You know, world is in peril because of ghosts and you have your comedic actors. Um, so that formula is still there, but how, I mean, how would you think that they would get that individual voice other than just not writing and scripting a whole lot? I think you'd almost have to rewrite everything and not make it just Ghostbusters with different, uh, people. And that's, that's one thing is just... That's why I kind of am a lot less big on movies that just, hey, let's retell the exact same story, but update the jokes, uh, make uniforms slightly different, and like let's have Slimer in there. We have to have proton packs. Either you have to do a direct sequel, like something like the Doctor Who reboot, which is this is this that many years later. Like if I was going to have these four actors and say, okay, make a Ghostbusters movie, 
I'd be much more likely to have it take place in the same Ghostbusters universe and say, well, what would happen 30 years after Ghostbusters 2? Well, let's say they're setting up franchises. How do you give this its own identity? How, what, what if they're the Ghostbusters of, like, Portland, Oregon? What if they're the Ghostbusters? Then you can film it in Vancouver, and it'll be cheaper. (laughs) But I mean, anything like let's just say these are the Ghostbusters of like Tempe, Arizona, (laughs) and right off the bat, there is a whole new everything you can do with this franchise. I I think that I think the single biggest problem comes out, and this is I think also the big peril for the Star Trek franchise as as a set of movies is is that the stakes of a special effects driven story, or at least a story that's made clear by the inclusion of good special effects as ghostbusters was as star trek was later um is at peril because special effects movies are a thing they're everywhere and yeah and and there there is a way to do them i mean you things can be done well capably mad max the the fury road was an amazing use of cgi effects to to make visual storytelling that doesn't devolve into the sort of just mind-numbing senselessness. Cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but but there. But that is that. That's the money maker. That is the money maker and right I, now. Is those big spectacles, special effects. And spectacles. if it didn't feel like that was steering so many of the decisions, it wouldn't bother me as much. And it feels like Ghostbusters is a marriage of both serious and uh, funny. That it wasn't. I mean, there's a lot of uh, outrageous, silly things. There's several ghosts that they encounter that are silly, but. For the most part, a lot of the mythology and there's a lot of genuinely scary moments in the movie are played totally straight. Mm-hmm. The library ghost is funny because of their reaction to it, but the library ghost is actually pretty fucking scary. Yeah. There's also the scene where Dana Barrett is uh, possessed and those hands start bursting out of her sofa and grabbing her. That's freaky, and it's played totally straight. Um, a lot right. of things in the movie are played really really actually the fear and laughter response is such a similar thing that if you know how to use those things together a great example is rick moranis running from the giant demon dog thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that it's genuinely scary until he's cornered and it looks like it's gonna murder him and then they finish it off with a joke like people in the restaurant are like huh Okay, back to that. And it, it's sort of like it gives you the fear, and then you're like, ah, it gives you a, a release to the fear that also makes it funny. And they intersperse jokes. He's being funny while the scene is being scary at the same time. Mm. And it feels like with the new Ghostbusters trailer that the movie is going all one way and not having any of the legitimate scares. And mm. maybe it's just poor representation in the trailer of the full spectrum of the movie. But I also want to know this too, because I may be too close to this franchise. Am I being unfair uh, to this trailer or is this something that's everyone else thinks is just great? And am I just being too much of a fanboy to see it? And that's what I want to know. I want somebody to either smack me on the head or just tell me I'm not crazy. I thought it looked terrible, but as you were describing your your not wanting to hate the trailer, I was thinking I was thinking, Jesus Christ, if we had more experiences like you and I had for John Wick, where something Keanu comes back again, where I didn't see a trailer, you didn't see a trailer, we just saw a movie and were able to enjoy it as it was, not the way that the way it's marketed where they cut up large pieces of it and spo- vis- do sp- visual spoilers for most of the movie like uh uh the latest coen brothers movie hail caesar um is fantastic uh it's got these um, this amazing sort of uh, visual callbacks these amazing little comedy set pieces set in the golden age of hollywood um or rather 
the fifties of Hollywood, and this the the trailer just gives you not let leaves you nothing, leaves you nothing to be surprised about. Well, that's the problem. And it's with it's it's shocking. It makes it makes me want to say that I want I want like a trailer free experience. Like I just don't. I want to stop watching them. I think that's a good call. I mean, I haven't seen the Ghostbusters trailer. I, as far as trailers go, I got what I wanted this week because the new Civil War trailer came out. Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to spoil it because I actually spoiled it for a good friend of mine. So I'm not. if you haven't seen it, watch it. I got everything I wanted. This, it's hard for me to be angry this week because I'm like, I watched that and I was like, yes, this is Is, is exactly William Hurt playing the same character that he played in Hulk? Yes, he is. Yes. Oh. Thunderbolt that, Ross. People forget that that movie is part of the cinematic universe. Yeah. That- a lot of it is just the replacement of Edward Norton with Mark Ruffalo, which mm. I don't mind because I love Mark oh, Ruffalo. No, I think he's great. Um, I like Edward Norton, but apparently he was a giant fucking pain in the ass to work with, mm. and it made sense that they wouldn't ask him back. But it was funny because it came out the same year as Iron Man, and it had, the post-credit sequence has uh, Robert Downey Jr. in it yeah. as Tony Stark. So it's part of that universe. But they've never called back to anything specifically in The Incredible Hulk. Well, I think it's because of the the change to Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I, I thought it was a definitely a better movie than Ang Lee's Hulk, but we still have not oh. gotten the Hulk movie that we need, which is pretty much just Hulk smash. You don't do dramatic uh, character exploration with the fucking Hulk because – that's not the kind of character the Hulk is. You can do that with Steve Rogers. You can do that with Tony Stark. You can do it with any one of a number of other characters. From the Hulk, he just needs to smash shit. That's what was so satisfying about Avengers. Mm-hmm. That's what's so satisfying about Avengers 2 is watching him smash shit. He's the Hulk. He smashes shit. You can do character <laughs> development on Bruce Banner in Avengers movies and shit like that, but like... Well, it's a hard thing because the Hulk is a character. Oh, you didn't like the Nick Nolte saying, I can partake in the essence of all things. <laughs> that was brilliant. Oh, my God. Say what movie. you will. Say what you will. The Ang Lee Hulk movie was kind of like a like a symphony. It was like a yes. weird, beautiful, twisted, incomprehensible there symphony. There are little moments and- of that movie. That, as a person, I used to actually have a giant, incredible Hulk collection of merchandise. I used to... <laughs> I. I I there was probably a good ten year period where the Incredible Hulk was my favorite fictional character, and I am a natural hoarder. So every time I would go to like the um, the Puyallup Fair, and we would see those things where people have their collections of stuff. In the back of my head, I'm like, I can fucking top that. Um, I have <laughs> I still have a lot of it, and I'm probably going to have an Incredible Hulk themed garage sale at some point. So you were you were very into Hulk at the time. Yes. Did I, I think I met you during your Aquaman phase. Yes. Are you transitioning out of Aquaman? Uh, yeah, you like I, Superman now. I have no what I, what no he blasphemy. You've, actually, you've always loved Superman. I we love know Superman. This. Superman sort of in the background. Superman doesn't overtake any sort of things else because Superman for me has to be done in such a specific way for me to enjoy it, and I very seldomly get it. Um, I almost can never read ongoing Superman comics because it's not what I want. It's always a random miniseries that comes out every so often that does Superman right or Christopher Reeve. But um, for me... You can always go scratch that itch, right? But for me, the thing with with the Hulk, too, is that he's a character who drops out of the movie because he's replaced with another person every so often. Mm. So it's a lot of times you just go like, well, where the fuck is the Hulk? Why am I watching this skinny dude? I want to see the Hulk break things. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's his superpower. Is he gets really mad and he breaks, breaks things. Shit, yes, that's his power. So, so, are you back to the Hulk, or who's your who's your character right now that you're most? Uh, I don't think I with? have one. I think the closest I have right now is Jonah Hex, the DC Comics uh, Western hero yeah. with the hideous facial scar. He's awesome. I fucking love Jonah Hex. Um, I, I just was reading on the internet that that was uh, Marvel's biggest flop. From oh, all of the superhero movies, DC. DC. Oh, DC. Excuse yeah. me, DC. Lamar should be punched for that. Yeah, it was DC's biggest uh, box office flop. It was and most money lost. You know, the worst thing about on. it is that plus Green Lantern gives Warner Brothers the notion that the only way they can make money is to make everything exactly like the Dark Knight, mm. and they've learned that lesson. So I, I have a question, real quick. That I this may uh, Jonathan Landis is writing a Superman miniseries right now. Have you read any of that? No, I haven't. Is it any good? I haven't figured it out yet. I'll let you know. Okay, please. <laughs> I'm, I've I've read the first four issues, and it's um, it's a it's a thing. Uh, I don't hate it. I don't hate it yet, which is normally with Superman stuff. Because Superman and Batman have kind of, especially now that that with the Nolan Batman movies and the newest Superman movie, they kind of exist in this place in my head where I know that nine times out of ten, I'm not going to get the representation. The 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 version of them that I want. So I just kind of let them be who I want them to be in the back of my head. And then I buy the books that in, in which, you know, to get what I want out of them. But, uh, I, uh, Jonathan Landis is doing this really weird exploration of him. It's called American alien. I, there's some interesting stuff in there. I haven't decided whether or not it's, it's any good because I think Jonathan Landis and I may, you know, there are people that think he's fucking brilliant. He's got this really big rant on YouTube. You can YouTube it about the death and return of Superman. I happen to think it's full of shit. I think that the stuff that he targets in the death and return of Superman had been doing, had been happening for years at that point in comic books. But like, he's very much like, um, uh, he's very, he's very into like this meta conceptual stuff that a lot of, I think his generation is. And he, he hasn't sold me on anything yet, but I I was just wondering, because I would be curious to see how you feel about it. I kind of generally assume with most anything Superman that I'm going to hate it. I love the character a lot in that platonic form in my head, the same as you have there. And f- really, I just so seldomly get it that I just kind of wait to hear if something amazing comes out. And nowadays, looking at how they're doing Superman and have been doing Superman for the past... I don't know, 2011 they started the new 52. It's just not my Superman. And the Man of Steel movie, not my Superman. And whatever version of Superman seems to be making them the most money is not one that is what I want out of it. What I want out of Superman is to be reminded of what it feels like to be a six-year-old kid. And a lot of it, too, and I've, I've said this before, that Really, when you get down to where all of my ideological and philosophical ideas of everything come from, it's generally based on a hard little kernel at the middle, which is just a hatred of bullies. And what I love about Superman is that he's a powerful person who's not a bully and, in fact, thinks that a powerful person, rather than just seeing people as a means to get whatever they want or their own amusement or hurt them or make money off of them or exploit Mm -hmm. them, that... He says that, you know, I have an obligation to protect that person from all the other big people who are bullies. Yeah, he's the anti-bully. 
And then he's not a dick about it, too, that he doesn't feel like his protection of anyone gives him. Nobody's obligated in any way to him that he does it because he couldn't live with himself if he wasn't doing it. And that sense of just basic altruism is something that is missing in a lot of superhero everything nowadays. And I love snarky superheroes as much as anybody. But the thing that makes the Captain America movies my favorite is that it's just so unapologetically earnest and kind and just this idea of somebody being motivated by something other than angst, um, parental issues, trauma, whatever, that there could be the idea that, hey, I'm going to go put on a costume and help people because it's the right thing to do because I was brought up by people who said that if you're strong that you have an obligation to help people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to do that. And I can't not do that because that's who I am even if I lost my powers. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that pretty much nails it for me. That's I mean, I... that's, Superman is, is the anti-bully. He's somebody that would much rather embrace another person than hit another person. And he will go to great lengths to not hit another person. And I think Steve, I think Steve Rogers is the same way. And I think that there is a, a heroicism there that is... Largely lost on a lot of what DC is doing these days, anyways. What I loved, my favorite moment in the Avengers sequel is there's this bit where, um, I forget what her, Maria Hill, who's the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., who left S.H.I.E.L.D. to work for the Avengers, is giving uh, Captain America a briefing on the Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch duo. And telling them that, you know, telling Steve, it's like, oh, yeah, they handed themselves over to this guy who's like an ex-Nazi. And they did experiments on them and basically turned them into monsters. And they did it because they were actually really angry about American imperialism and that they wanted to protect their country. And um, Steve Rogers' reaction to her being really dismissive about them and their motivations, he's like, yeah, what kind of monster would let a German scientist experiment on them because they wanted to protect their country? (laughs) And and what I love about Steve is that Steve refuses to dehumanize anybody yeah. and that he's somebody that like there's a scene in the first Avengers where uh, Bruce Banner has been brought in to help because he knows about radiation and energy and technology and stuff like that, not because he turns big and hits things. And there's this moment where he first meets Captain America and he says, um, Cap says to him, Dr. Banner, it's good to meet you. I hear you're the man who knows how to... The word on you is you know about this. And and Banner says something like, is that the only word about me? And he's like, the only word that matters. And you're just like, damn, you're a good guy. (laughs) And I just like the idea of just not buying into this basic assumption that a lot of movies have that a really nice, decent person is boring. Oh, thank you for saying that because that pisses me off all the time. I fucking hate that. That is that is. I mean, that's, that's. I don't have to go off on the rant that I would normally have because you you said it for me. Because that's that's the thing. It's like, I'm sorry. The, the every fucking conversation I have with anybody about, oh, I don't like Superman. I'm like, I'm gonna tell you why. He's boring. He's unrelatable, and uh, he's a Boy Scout. Well, you're wrong on all three counts. <laughs> tell me, I want you to fucking name to me five things of Superman that you've read, and none of them can hmm. because they just fucking pick it up and they run with it. And I'm just like. Hmm. Like if you've read Birthright, if you've read All Star Superman, if you've read, if you read a year of all you know Superman coming out from DC, that's fine. Like at least you have a basis for something, but don't don't write him off because everybody else does. Because you're like, a, especially if you're gonna yeah. fucking tell me that Superman is not relatable, but Batman is. 
because I can guarantee <laughs> fucking to you that you have never been a billionaire orphan that is a fucking like the best human on earth, right? Like you are, you do not have seventeen black belts. You do not have degrees in forensic fucking I, criminology and psychology. Like, I I just think that people glommed on to Batman uh, because he was in the animated series and Superman came late. So there's a whole there's a whole generation gap of people who had didn't hit Superman as their first real superhero. Well, I, I think, think that's it. A that's lot fair. of it too is that Superman is a lot harder to write well than Batman. Mm. Yeah. It is so easy to write a good Batman story because it's easier to challenge Batman, it's easier to to push Batman. And the people forget the things that made Superman great. The way you challenge him is not just by making a bigger asteroid. It's about the struggle to remain a good person and the refusal to cave to it. That's why uh, Winter Soldier was such a great fucking movie. Yeah. Is it's in many ways it's about having a hero who is the anti Jack Bauer. It's yeah. a character who's in a muddy gray world. If you want to have a dark Superman story, you make the world dark. You don't make Superman dark. Mm-hmm. And Winter Soldier is about a guy who's trying to do the right thing in a world that just sort of accepts without having a conversation that things are just messy and you have to be a monster sometimes because that's just the way things are. And he refuses to budge on it and he refuses to be a a nasty person. He refuses to accept casualties. He he, uh, refuses to acknowledge that being nasty and underhanded is something that he has to do to either be safe or to protect other people. And there's something about that that is incredibly appealing because not just other superhero stories, but all other fiction that involves having a hero that saves people just kind of takes that as as if it's self-evident. And it's like, no, he's a superhero. He is going to fucking save everybody because he's amazing. And the thing that makes Superman and Captain America amazing isn't just that, oh, he can jump over this really well or he can fly or he can lift a building or he can do this precise throw with his shield. It's that despite all the things he's seen and done and all the things he has to come up against, that he's still a good person who refuses to budge on that. And that to me is the part that appeals. That's the part to me that reminds me of being a six year old again, that it's Hmm. like, that's what makes him cool, that he's going to keep you safe and that he doesn't expect anything in return for it. And because it's just what you do. That's the kind of good guy you want to be when you're six years old. It strikes me that uh, it that it makes total sense that both Superman and Captain America are DC and Marvel's most patriotic superheroes. There is a lot of that there. Right? And it also no, ta- I mean, it d- takes direct... back patriotism, too. Yes, yeah, exactly. It also says that the Jack Bauer version of patriotism is just this major part of of uh, our popular culture for the longest time. And actually, that is one of the things that, until the Captain America movie started coming out, the assumptions people made about Captain America. And this is a, one of the things where I get angry at my fellow liberals more than anyone else. They just immediately <laughs> start spewing out assumptions about Captain America. Yeah. That, oh, he must be a nationalist thing, and he's a propaganda yeah. machine, that he's all about... Uh, American imperialism. He's all, and he's like, no, he is the opposite of that. <laughs> nomad, motherfuckers. Yeah, <laughs> that there is a Captain America. Speaking of nomad, do you know the story that led him to become nomad? Yeah, no, absolutely. They wanted him. I can't remember the details, but they were pretty much like they wanted him to be to just blindly follow along with. They wanted him to, to be a shill, and he was like, no, I'm not going to fucking do this. 
because he was morally against what they were. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was in the 70s. It was a yes. thing where it, it was a secret it empire was, story. Um, it was um, Steve Englehart that came right. out right after Watergate. And the thing that's kind of beautiful. So, so wait, in Captain America's world, is the is the arms of the U.S. government constantly just becoming corrupt and he has to walk away from them? Is that happening on, uh, on a regular cycle, right? Oh, the American government is way easier to take over in comic books because uh, it equals stories and it equals things for these characters to do that justify their existence. So, so it, But it has to be a foreign institution encroaching and taking over the U.S. government. It can't just be something that's native to the U.S. Oh, frequently it's native. Okay. Actually, yeah. the best Captain America stories are him fighting some version of a hate group. Yeah. That oh. uh, there was a story that actually got a lot of shit. Uh, our, our, actually, a writer that we both really love, Ed Brubaker, wrote a Captain America story where there was a hate group that was actually using what was very obviously the Tea Party movement to try to recruit uh, forces <laughs> for their movement to try to overthrow the government. And it was so clear that the like, oh, I hate, oh, don't take your government hand out of my Medicare. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, Obama, no Obama. I mean, it was that kind of shit. And it was like, yeah, that's exactly the sort of people who do end up shooting up malls. And, you know, yeah, of course, there's some costumed asshole who really, really hates people that are different is going to take advantage of that, you know? I mean, seriously, Hydra is going to recruit at Trump rallies. <laughs> There you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> that's how you do that shit. The sons of the serpent. Yeah, that's these these things are not not made up because these horrible liberal people are trying to force their agenda on us through our comic books. Is this, this shit's been there since the fucking sixties? The sons of the serpent, which people recently got angry at, has always been an angry anti-immigrant costume supervillain group in the fucking sixties. <laughs> They've always been that. And it's just, holy shit, it turns out that things have gotten fucking worse on that front. So, yeah, we're going to use the people in our cadre of supervillain bad guys that actually fit with the tone of, of the modern era. It's like, oh, yeah, that's ex it's like we're not making this shit up. <laughs> fucking hate it I, I, I hate it when people do this stuff this is this is great for me because on on my podcast i am the resident ranter yeah so it's really nice to watch somebody else rant because then i can just be like i agree yeah. i i agree oftentimes I, agree I feel like i'm your pressure release valve mike sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's an, it's an important it's an important aspect for for a friend to have because uh, my my friend uh, toby says that uh, he has one of his jobs is to express my vitriol gland. Otherwise, I'll spontaneously combust and take out a whole city block. But uh, so, which usually results in him saying things that he blatantly knows will upset me. So that I'm just like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" But I, I agree with you. I think that both of those characters get written off as these kind of like meathead nationalist, like thoughtless characters. And it's like mm, maybe you should try picking up a book and reading it. Good advice for any decade. Absolutely. Radio versus the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversusthemartians.com and send us your feedback at info at radioversusthemartians.com. The CM amplifies everything that is inside, so good becomes great, bad becomes worse.
this is why you were chosen. Because a strong man who has known power all his life may lose respect for that power. But a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. Thanks, I think. Whatever happens tomorrow, you must promise me one thing. That you will stay who you are. Not a perfect soldier, but a good man.